I think people sometimes sell themselves a little bit short. Clients, they're looking to you to tell them how they should treat you in terms of respect and seniority and time. And if you set those boundaries with them with confidence and you give them the sense that you should be treated as like a trusted advisor and skilled member of their team, typically they'll treat you that way. If you give them the sense that you should be treated like a design vending machine, they'll treat you that way. So a lot more of it is in the power of the freelancer, I think, than they, they sometimes think. Welcome to Dive Club. My name is Rid, and this is where we go deep with the best designers so that you can learn from their journey and apply it to your own career. Today, I'm talking with Kevin Tui, who's one of my favorite freelance designers. He's led design for Mirror, Milk Bar, New York Times, and a ton of other high-end clients. So this conversation answers pretty much every question that you could possibly have about freelancing, but we really focus in about how his practice has evolved over the last 10 years and the different lessons that he's learned along the way. Because Kevin's at the point now where he feels confident that he can do this for the rest of his career, but I wanted to start by going back to the very beginning to learn more about how Kevin first got into freelancing. Yeah, so you know, the first half of my career has been in-house at mostly at consumer-facing early stage startups, usually as the first designer, joining early on before the product has a lot of like definition to it, figuring out what the product is and getting it out into market. And I did a few rounds of that at various companies. It's always a gamble when you're joining, especially an early stage startup. I had a lot of great experiences. In this case, I had one you know, not so great experience and I had sunk a couple years into that. And so after I sort of felt, one, I needed a break. Two, I was ready to sort of explore. And actually the freelance came into my life as I thought a tactic to sort of try before I buy. So I was oriented around finding a new company to join. And I felt like, ah, if I had just worked with these people for a couple weeks, I think I would have had a really clear idea on where the mismatch was. And it's nothing, you know, nothing wrong with them. They're, they're very lovely people. It's just, we saw the world and the product differently and we had different working styles. So I could have figured that out so much more cheaply if I worked on a freelance project with them. So that was the motivation for starting my first set of, of freelance projects. So then can you talk a little bit about how you landed those first clients? Were you totally viewing them through the lens of like, would I want to work here full time? Or like, how did those opportunities present themselves? Yeah, I, I was looking for companies like the types of companies I would want to work for, you know, and work with. And so, you know, I'm looking for people sometimes that are hiring for a full-time design lead or a full-time founding designer. In the early stage, you don't have any other clients, you don't have any other referrals to bank on. So the two places that mine came from were just my network. So they're referrals, but not in the traditional sense. It's just emailing people who you know, who trust you. And they may be from your, uh, not past freelance clients, but just from your career. Like you had a prior job and you email your boss from the prior job and say, this is what I'm doing now. Here's how I want to be described. Here's what you should keep an ear out for. And you do that a lot. And you need to have a lot of people out there sort of listening for you so that luck can strike. And then the other is basically cold outreach and not in a spammy way, but, you know, looking around and finding the people who either are the people you want to work for or very adjacent to them and just reaching out. And that can be on Twitter, via email. And this is something that I did a lot in the early stage. And to be honest, I was a little embarrassed about it to begin with and now I'm like very proud of it and I do it to this day. I sent a cold email literally yesterday and got a response. Just someone who I thought 
I really would love to connect with this person, not for a project right now, but just down the road. Maybe it'll be five years later. You may get a reply to 20% of them and you may get a conversation from 10% of them. Maybe you end up getting uh, a gig from 5% of those, one in 20. And that's great. That's all you need to get going. And the success rate of that does not need to be very high for it to still be a good tactic because it's not what you're gonna be doing forever. You're just trying to get the flywheel going essentially. I think an interesting way to think about this conversation is going to be to zoom into an element of the freelancing process and then kind of talk about how it has evolved for you as you've moved from exploring freelancing to realizing you really like it to now kind of, you know, having a lot of success, repositioning yourself and deciding that you, you kind of want to do this forever. So maybe the first one that we can zoom into is this cold outreach. How often are you doing that? But even more interestingly, I'd love to hear how that process has evolved over those phases? Like, are there things you've learned about how you pitch yourself to companies in a cold setting or ways that you've improved that part of your practice? Yeah, definitely. And I do think that is sort of a common theme of all, all freelance questions have sort of this arc of in the beginning and in the middle and then later. And cold outreach falls into the category of how do I get clients? That's probably the number one question that I get from aspiring freelance folks. And so within that cold outreach, you know, in the beginning, I think it was very tactical and mapped to a service, right? I can do digital product design for you on an hourly rate. And here's the company. And maybe I have an idea of what type of design or what projects they might need and suggesting, Hey, do you need this type of help now or in the next few months? Let's have a conversation and here are my rates. And so that's like very transactional and very practical. And you're just hoping that they might have that need now or soon. And I think that's also in the early stage, you're not really trading necessarily on your reputation because you might not have one or your public persona because you might not have one. Really, it's relying like very heavily on the portfolio, right? That someone's going to click through and see what is this person about? What are they capable of? Is it a fit for what I'm looking for? So very kind of transactional, portfolio-driven. Maybe you're emailing a lot more people because you're not actually sure yet. That's another angle to this is, you know, I think early on in a freelance journey, I think it makes sense to be oriented towards exploration and figuring out. You may not know exactly the right way that you want to work. You may not know the exact right client for you, and it may not be obvious. So it's good to cast a wide net in that stage. In kind of the middle tier of my career, the frequency decreased and the format changed a little bit, but it also started serving a bit of a different function, which was sort of, there's this like feast or famine cycle of freelancing. You have a bunch of business at one point and then six months later you have nothing and that's a common thing that I hear. So how do you modulate that and make sure you have what you need or want when you need or want it? So you rely on inbounds to the degree that you can, but you don't control how many you're getting and when. Cold outreach though you do control. So that in kind of the middle part of my career kind of served a different function of like modulating supply and demand where I would look, let's say towards the end, of, let's say it's summer towards the end of the year, it's looking like I might need to roll off of some projects onto new clients. And I don't really want to be at the mercy of what's in my inbox at that time. So why don't I send some outreach or get in touch with some folks now a few months in advance so that I know basically what I'm trying to tee up is, some set of leads that I'm interested in for about three months from now. So that's kind of in the middle stage. And I would say fast forward to today, 
I'm usually doing this just to be in touch with interesting people that I want to connect with that maybe I like respect what they're doing or their point of view on the world or maybe they're in a completely different industry like this cold email I sent yesterday I have zero expectation that this is going to be a client for me in the next couple of years it's just someone that I think will be good for myself and my business to be in touch with and I might learn something from them, might learn something about a new industry. It speaks to the importance of investing in your reputation and having a good reputation because most of the people you're cold emailing, they're going to find someone who knows you on Twitter or LinkedIn. It really, really pays to have high confidence that in 99% of cases, they're going to get a really good positive answer from that reference check. You mentioned in the early days kind of being exploratory and not even really being sure about how you want to work and what you want this to look like. So what were some of the things in those first few months or maybe even the first year that you were learning about yourself that shaped the way that you even approached your work as a freelancer? I guess the theme of the early first stage of freelancing for me was just figuring out how to do it and feeling very awkward at it. Every aspect of it, you know, there's the work itself, but then there's meeting the client, there's pitching, there's negotiation, there's billing, invoicing, and every single aspect of that you kind of feel like you're doing wrong. And there's not a lot of confidence built up in it yet. So that I would characterize that as just sort of uncertainty and trying to figure out how to do it or if I'm even going to be any good at it. I think I had a high degree of competence in the core work product, but there's so much more, especially when you're working one-on-one -on -one with clients, you, you don't have an agency in between. So you're not just like producing the work, you're actually running the client engagement yourself. So that was just very exploratory. You learn by doing and you sort of learn as you go. And I think the biggest thing from that, there's the practical learnings. You may learn an industry or a tactic or a way to run meetings or a way to showcase work or negotiate that works for you. But the biggest thing I think that comes out of that, at least for me, is just a, a core confidence that, oh, okay, I'm actually pretty decent at this. I know how to do it. I've learned a few things. And that confidence that you bring to early negotiations and meetings with clients, they can really sense it from the very beginning. And it's not a confidence born of ego, like I have all the answers. It's just, I'm not nervous about this. You can trust me. We'll figure it out together and I'll have your back. And a lot of times when clients are asking, it feels like they're putting you through the ringer, asking a lot of questions. Really, in a lot of cases, what they're looking for is that sense. And you can give that through answers, but a lot of it is just an intangible sense of, I've done this a lot and I've figured a lot of things out. Can we talk a little bit about like the very beginning part of a client engagement where you're actually having some kind of a negotiation or a back and forth or some questions happening? Because I've done this a few times and I've always felt like it was very sloppy and elongated, but I, I'm not even really sure like what I'm doing wrong. And so maybe you could even talk about what that was like for you in the early stages and, and what were some of the things that you identified where you could kind of button up that process a little bit or present yourself more effectively? Like you in my early stages of freelancing, I didn't know what to ask. I didn't know the right questions. I was definitely looking for the client to basically tell me exactly what to do. And I do think that's a common trajectory of sort of like, you tell me what to do, then let's figure it out together. And then I'm not going to tell the client what to do. But you know, in many cases for an experienced freelancer, they're coming to you for expertise, not just in how to do the design, but is this even the right project? Can you tell us what you've seen from other projects like this that you've run? Am I asking for the right thing? So in the beginning, yeah, not really sure what questions to ask. Also, you don't know any of the ways things can go wrong that you might want to hunt out 
beforehand. So that just comes from experience. Can you talk a little bit about like, what are the ways that things can go wrong? Like what are the pitfalls that you're actively trying to avoid? One of the biggest things is just a lack of alignment, a misalignment. You think you're on the same page about some detail and you're not. I'll give you an example. So, and, and I'll segue into kind of like the middle phase of how I tried to solve this that I think was the wrong way. But I ended up developing this little intake survey that I asked clients to do. I, I thought, okay, well, I have all these questions that are really important and I really want the answer to them. So I'll put them in this intake survey and ask the client to fill it out before an engagement. That turned out, in my opinion, to be a horrible idea, but, and I'll tell you why. But one of the questions I put in there was basically, who's responsible for the ultimate success of this project? Is it me, Kevin? Is it you, the client? Or is it us together? Most people tend to say it's us together, but the answer to that question being misaligned is very telling, right? And if the client says, hey, it's you, what they're saying is I'm counting on you to get the whole thing right. So if something seems off, they're asking for you to correct it. Whereas if they say it's me, the client, they're kind of communicating, I, rightly or wrongly, I want to run the show and I want you to essentially do what, what I'm telling you to do. So having a misalignment on those types of topics is at the root of a lot of things going wrong. But another thing that I would ask up front is just very explicitly, if this project, what does it look like if it's successful? But if this project goes wrong, if it goes off the rails and it's a failure, why do you think that might have happened? And the answers to that are very, very telling. It might surface things that you weren't even thinking about not even concerned about. And you learn that's the client's number one fear. And a lot of times it's something that, oh, that's not an issue at all. And, I, and as I take this project on, I'm always gonna have that at the back of my mind. Client X is really worried about this failure mode. Like it may be that they're worried that as an external vendor, you won't be integrated enough with their team. So I'm gonna make sure to be talking to their team all the time. So yeah, but I'll speak about the the survey, so I thought that was a really clever way to do it. And I think I also was looking around at a lot of people automating systems and making things hyper-efficient. And putting that in a survey and skipping the conversation misses out on one of the best opportunities to run the process, this process that you're talking about, which might be called sort of like alignment or discovery or scoping. Because usually the, the answer that they can give either in a survey or the very first answer that the client gives to a question like that is missing a lot of context, a lot of business context, emotional context. And really, I think a lot of what I'm working with and going on in the, the course of an engagement comes out of those early conversations and digging three or four or five levels deeper. So they, why are we doing this? Oh, we have this business need. And just showing a curiosity. Well, can you tell me about that? Tell me, tell me about it from the beginning. How did we get into this situation? Or if there's a concern, well, what's really behind that concern? Can you tell me about it? I find that when the client senses that that's what's going on, oftentimes, maybe 30 minutes in that conversation, there's this very perceptible shift. And they kind of go like, you know, Kevin, and they take a deep breath and they say, let me tell you really what's going on. And that's where you learn everything. I guess themes there are take the time to show a true and genuine curiosity about what is going on in the moment that you meet that client, both the person and the business. And yeah, just listen very, very carefully to what's being said and what's not being said, because a lot of that, it'll never show up when they email you saying, I need some design done. And it'll never show up in a survey. You have to find that stuff. So you mentioned scrapping the survey and you know, you're kind of talking about like 
this discovery call and I think there's like really interesting questions in there. Can we zoom out just like a little bit too? Like what other parts do you just have included as like the standard process for how you work? Like once a contract is signed, are there other systems or things that you find yourself doing or boxes that you're checking pretty much every time? Yeah. So I'll talk about kind of like before contract or before engagement and then after in both of those, I'm pretty process light. I am very organized and very like meticulous in my work, but I don't try to do that through a bunch of sort of like templates and decks and things like that. I try to just take on that responsibility and that way of working as an individual. And so before signing a contract these days, and you know, I should say as context, I work on long-term retainer-based projects. They can range from, you know, a year to, in one case, one of my longer projects is four years long. I would say the median is about 18 months to get a, a project from the very, very early stage to something that's working in the market. Suffice it to say, they're big long-term projects and I want to make sure that it's a really, really good fit from the beginning. So that kind of like courtship period tends to be pretty long. I might talk to a potential client six, seven, eight times before we kick off an engagement and it's months, months in advance usually. So a lot of times I'm the, the framing for those conversations is, Hey, you know, we think we would like to work together. We're going to, you know, sign a contract eventually, but let's just get into it now. Let's not wait to sign a contract. I'm not going to actually start hardcore design work, but I want to really dig into not the abstract, but the details of what we're going to be working on what the challenge is. So those can be sort of working sessions or more like um, consultative, more like an interview back and forth, but basically just talking to the client naturally and showing again, that genuine curiosity in their work and their business. And that also just brings out a lot of the personality. You get to know each other more as a human. So that process might take place over a couple months getting to know each other. And at the end of that, I think you have a really good idea whether it's going to be a fit or not. If I have any uncertainty at the end of that process, it usually means it's not a good fit. And again, that's pretty unique to these long, deep engagements. The process obviously would be different if you're, you know, if you're an illustrator or if you know, you're building a website over six weeks or something like that. But that's, that's sort of how I run them. Because you're working on these super long engagements, I'm curious to learn more about how you assimilate into the team. Something even as simple as like how you share your work and source feedback. Like, do you have your process that you bring with you or do you kind of work backwards from the way that the team is already working? Can you just shed a little bit of light on how you plug into a team and, and what your schedule ultimately looks like? In terms of vendors for design and engineering, et cetera, you've kind of got agency, big agency on one end, you've got Wild West solo freelancer on the other end, and then there's this thing like a design practice or an individual studio of ones. So we can talk about that later. On that range, there, the tactics and the way that those companies work with clients and vendors are totally different. And one of the things that I have been trying to do with my business over the past few years is, you know, sometimes you might see in marketing copy for designers, like all the benefits of an agency without the overhead. You see that all the time. I started to think, and I understand why, but I started to think really deeply about really digging into that and thinking about what are the benefits? Like, why are these clients, what are they looking for when they hire these big expensive agencies and what are they actually getting? It's one thing to say, oh, agencies are all bloated, but they're hiring them for a reason, a good reason. Why are they hiring freelancers and what are they looking for in that? And why is it the case that most of the people that do the work for them are employees? 
they would hire an employee in many cases if they could, but they can't, so they're talking to you. Really thinking about how can I actually, not just say it, but bring to the table the benefits of what these companies are going to the biggest and best agencies for in the form factor that usually they really want, which is an employee. And they want you to feel as much as possible like an employee in terms of how you interact with their culture, how you interact with their other employees, how they don't want another system to deal with you. So that means for better or worse, being in Slack often. So I re to get back to your question, I really try to meet the company and the client where they're at and deliver work in a way that an employee probably couldn't, but do it in the form factor of basically pretending I'm their best super employee. Something that I've noticed recently is you've made this shift from positioning yourself more as like a, an individual studio with Tui Design Works rather than this freelancing model. Can you talk a little bit more about what went into that decision? I've been freelancing for about 10 years and for that entire 10 years essentially, I was just working under my own name and part of the reason for that is that I've just always really believed in the power and the benefit of what the individual relationship can do and what it can produce between a client and a vendor and the challenges that come with working with a team. I've just always enjoyed and believed in the power of that personal uh, approach and relationships. Uh, and I never made any attempt during those 10 years to sort of like puff myself up and call it Acme Studios when it was really just me. I, I felt very strongly that that was sort of like giving away the best thing I have going, which is these people, they want to work with, with an individual. That's why they're talking to me in the first place. They could have hired an agency by now. And in terms of making the shift, there was a few main reasons. One is that, well, I was on paternity leave because I, I had our son about two years ago. And I had realized that I think I'm probably never going back to a full-time job. And I think if I can, I want to do this for the rest of my career. That being the case, I need to create, or I want to create a framework that will kind of support that longevity. And there's a few key things that are different about, you know, how I'm operating the business now than when I started out as a freelancer. One of them is, it is not just me. I have at least one or two associate designers part-time, usually floating around, and I have other folks that are helping out sort of around the margins that are not part of my organization, but are other, other freelancers. So there is a capability of taking on scope that is far beyond what an individual freelancer you typically could do. The other piece of it is sitting back and reflecting, oh, I might be doing this for 30 more years. Everyone needs to think about the trajectory of their career and sort of always be learning and inventing themselves and having new challenges to face. And when you run your own business, you need to do that for yourself. For me, a big part of that is I think my core competency is always going to be around, you know, product design, software, and, you know, some hardware product design. But I, over 30 years, I'm going to be wanting to do more than that, which means maybe branding, maybe industrial design and expanding the scope of what I'm working on for clients. And that's a little bit hard to do under an individual identity because I think folks have a mental model of kind of like a single discipline, a product designer, a software engineer. So expanding into more of a studio model, I shouldn't even say a studio model, just a studio framing allows me a container that can hold a lot of that broader set of disciplines and broader ways of working than just the way that a single freelancer does. And the last thing I'll say on that, since I was so kind of like on my own and ruminating in this process, 
I was really, really worried about losing the framing of the individual in that process and being legible as an agency. So that's why if you go to the TUI Design Works website, it's a little bit deranged and it's just a long unhinged essay. And the reason for that is I was just trying to think about what is the most individual way that I could convey my personality and approach that could only be done by one person. And so that's kind of part of the thinking behind it. I love the intentionality of that because it did stand out to me. And it's kind of cool to even think about the underlying reason for why you designed the site that way. Can you talk a little bit more about how you are working with other people and when you loop in and associate and how you even structure that working relationship? The way that I work, you know, like I said, I typically have one or two associate designers that are part-time. Some of them sort of like float in and out. And I use those resources to, for a few things. One is to enable me to move much faster. And sometimes I say to my clients, you know, 80% done, 80% to go, meaning we've basically figured this thing out, but there might be 20 hours of work left. And I don't want to tell them, hey, I'll see you in 20 hours. I want to tell them what's next. And so having designers that I work with that can help extend that work and extend the bandwidth, it also helps modulate a little bit. Like I was saying, they're, they're just you know working with multiple clients at a time. There are just weeks where everything hits and it's incredibly busy. And so I need a safety net to help even those out. But the, the specific thing to say about the associate designers, and I will say, in case he listens to this, the one designer that I'm working with now, I've worked with on and off for five years and he's actually quite senior. So I wouldn't, I, I don't want him to think I'm calling him a junior designer. But it really is more of an apprentice and an assistant type of model. And you see this in other industries. So like my wife is a stylist, for example. She works with photographers. You see this with architects. They run a singular creative vision, but they need help to do their job at the highest level. So they have people on their team that are working as an extra set of hands, and they may be very creatively capable on their own. But the, in order for it to run efficiently and at a high level, there is one person in charge. And for me it's a little difficult to talk about because it's hard to talk about without sounding egotistical, honestly. Like, I don't care about being at the center because I think I'm the best. I just know that you can achieve incredible things with one person driving the creative vision and other people helping. So you mentioned this point where you realized that you wanted to and also probably thought you were able to kind of do this freelancing thing forever. So... At that point, and now with you know, Tui Design Works, are there other ways that your practice has evolved that we're not talking about, or even just ways that how you view your life and work as a freelancer has changed over the years? We're going to have to talk about the phrase independent studio practice of, and a lot of it revolves around that, which... You know, when I would see that over the years, you know, it's one person, like the independent studio practice of John Doe or Jane Doe. And I, I have to admit, I kind of rolled my eyes, like, what is this all about? This person seems full of themselves. And of course, you know, that's on my website now, too. And I think over the years, I, I developed a realization of what that's about or what it's really about to me. And to me, it really wraps around that inflection point of realizing, oh, I'm going to be doing this for a really long time. And with that in mind... I think you don't want to run a career oriented just around the whims of your clients, you know, changing every six months. I think ideally you want to have a sense of who you are and what you're doing and where you're going. And the clients can, can sort of meet you halfway and work with you if that, if that works for them. So I think the shift from when you're a freelancer, especially starting out, if you think about it like a, like a, a space system or a planetary system, you're orbiting around the center of gravity of the client. 
for everything in terms of how you work, what you're doing, even your visual language, all of that. Maybe as you're developing in your freelance career, like your mass is increasing a little bit. You have a little bit more of your own center of gravity. And for me, realizing I'm going to be doing this, you know, for maybe 30 more years and developing sort of a brand and a framework around myself was really about, I think, recognizing that I am going to start to develop my own sense of gravity around what I'm doing, how I work, how I think about design, where I want to be headed in terms of my personal development and self-development, and just have that sense of self-orientation. And it doesn't mean that when you meet with clients, you say, this is my way, take it or leave it. It's not about that at all. In fact, sort of the opposite. But it's almost like, you know, you're not going to work with the same client for your whole career. So you have to have some sense of continuity around where you're heading and who you are. And to me, that's what that word practice really means. It's not just a fancy freelancer. On the flip side, like I've found, I think clients really respond very well to that. And that comes from, you know, goes back to that theme of confidence, but you do want to be flexible and you do want to be able to change your mind. But I think they really want to hear that you have a point of view and a way of working and something to offer and bring to the table. That has been a big shift in how I've thought about my work and my practice from kind of like freelancer to running you know, my design practice now. You've tossed this number 30 years out a couple times now. That's like a really long time. And I would imagine that, you know, you feel some desire to make sure that you're continuing to grow during that time and not just kind of just running the same process on repeat over and over again. So can you talk a little bit more about how you view personal development? Like, are there growth areas right now that you have targeted? I try to pay really close attention to where my curiosity is both in terms of design, but also more broadly than that. So like one example I can give, you know, I came into design, not, I don't have a traditional design background. I didn't go to design school and I didn't come from like a classical training. I came into design from engineering and writing, you know, dumb little programs as a kid in in high school and college. And I, I didn't even know that interaction design or software design was a discipline. I sort of found it out on accident. So I was very much sort of like a wireframe person and over the past 10 years have really leaned into like the visual side and, and craft and product design and all of that, everything I've learned over the past, you know, decade plus. But I've still, I've never thought of myself as a graphic designer and I've never thought of myself as really like an expert in brand or identity. If I'm being honest, I know that's been a bit of an insecurity over the past 10 years because so many of my peers and people that I look up to and admire, that's their core competency and they can create things that is just well beyond my skill level or my aptitude. And this also happened on my paternity leave, just reflecting a little bit on like, when I look around for inspiration, yeah, sometimes I'm interested in software and apps, but often I'm looking at like graphic design, the things that really get me going and give me a strong reaction is sort of like typography, color, and especially like, you know, witty copywriting. And there's a totally an alternate universe where I became, you know, a brand designer and went to graphic design school. So I kind of realized that it also just so happened that that was just kind of the in term, under the banner of design. It was really just the one thing that I didn't offer for my clients. I offer them basically kind of like soup to nuts. You know, these days when I take on my projects, I'm doing the brand design work as well and doing the identity work and all the pro- zero to one product design. And, but I know that that is a growth area for me, to be honest. And sometimes I need help and I have my you know expert friends on speed dial to, to pull them into that. But it's also very exciting to me and heartening to know that 
you know, while I can mostly operate in my zone of competence, this is kind of what I'm working on over the next five to 10 years is trying to become an expert in that area as well. I appreciate the vulnerability also because like I feel the exact same way where I don't have the traditional design background. I never learned, you know, quote unquote graphic design, but I gravitate towards zero to one projects working on startups. And a lot of times those are the projects that have some kind of a branding element to them. And it's like super intimidating to me. One thing I was going to say about that, another thing that sort of clicked in that moment when I was thinking about branding and identity was, you know, I am attracted to projects that normal people in my life understand and are interested in. I enjoy working on things that are a little bit more mainstream that they might get value out of. But even the most mainstream things that I've worked on, it may be the case that only, you know, 20% of people in my life actually use the software product, like download the app or in the case of like a hardware product, actually buy the widget and use it in their life. Most of them just kind of see it and they try to form an opinion or a reaction based on, on that. And they may say, that's really cool. I really like the thing you made. What they're really reacting to in that moment is not the software. They haven't experienced the software. They're experiencing the brand or a picture of the software. And that in and of itself is a whole emotional moment. And I had this moment when I was working on Mirror and because I was in this capacity as the sole designer, there are all kinds of things I had to do that I wasn't quite qualified to do, like design all the subway ads in New York City. Everyone in New York City saw those. And I realized 80% of them may never experience the hardware and the software that we made, but they all experienced the ads. And that was a really powerful moment to me realizing like, wow, that's a part of the whole thing. And in fact, it, it may be the part of the whole thing that more people experience than the actual software. And so I remember thinking, man, I really want to get good at this. In addition to subway ads, you also do a couple things that I find really interesting. And the first is that you often take equity in your projects. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? Like, how does it work? How are you structuring the deal? How often does it happen? This is a topic that comes up a lot with freelancers. Do you take equity? There's kind of two sides of the question. I think sometimes what they're asking is, hey, the client asked if I would take equity for a cheaper rate, should I do it? That's kind of what's behind the question or how should I talk to the client about it? And in a lot of cases, that's really what is going on. You know, the, the client may not have the cash to pay your full rate. Will you take some equity? Of course, in some cases, the equity may be worth something, but really what's behind it is they're asking for a discount. On the flip side, for the freelancer, you know, you don't have the equity that employees get. You don't uh, typically have an upside in the businesses that you help create. So if one of them is massively successful, you're never gonna have one of those asymmetric outcomes that early employees can have. So there's a give and a take to it. So I had sort of experimented with taking equity early on in projects, usually as a discount. I realized pretty quickly, I don't like giving a forever discount on a cash rate for a sort of indeterminate chunk of equity that you know has has dubious value, but also you're never gonna be around to defend your stake. For example, when the company raises a lot more money, you're gonna be a tiny little sliver on the cap table. Usually you're giving a discount on a rate in perpetuity for a one-time equity grant. So let's say I stay with that company for five years. Typically I'm not getting more and more and more equity. They wanna just do it as a single grant. So I think in general, my advice to people early on thinking about equity is if there's a way you can do it without giving a forever discount, that's good. I would also just always think about, assume the equity will be worth zero because it very likely will be, except in exceptional cases. So make sure the money, the cash that you're making, you're comfortable with. 
you can't pay your rent with equity. But on the flip side, you know, I've seen significant financial reward from owning pieces of the products that I've helped create. So it's paid off for me in the long term. And that's another piece of it. Just like investing and, and venture capitalists will tell you, it is a long-term process and it's an outliers game. So if you only take equity in one or two projects, the odds that it hits are very, very low. But if you have a broad distribution, your odds, your odds are better. And then so the last thing I would say, what I eventually shifted to was, I really didn't like the idea of giving a forever discount for a one-time equity grant, but I really did want to own, in some cases, even a more significant chunk of these companies. And I noticed how it created such great alignment between me and the founder. And so I decided to basically start buying the equity up front by investing my own capital and buying the equity in the exact same way that investors do at the terms their last investors got, or sometimes you know better in some cases. And that slight shift, it might even be the same amount of money that would be a discount that you're actually giving directly to the client. But the orientation and the interpersonal dynamics change completely. You're on the cap table as an investor. You get the investor updates. You've given this amazing vote of confidence up front that, hey, I'm putting my capital on the line for this as well. I'm an owner in the business. And so that's how I buy equity these days. And it also allows for a little bit better visibility into you know, like future financing rounds and if I want to do pro rata or buy more equity. I've had to build up to that over a couple years, but that's how I do it these days, investing upfront as opposed to taking a discount. That's cool. Well, the other interesting thing that I wanted to talk about and kind of along the lines of how you invest in the success of the company is I often see you trying to hire your replacement on Twitter. So can you talk a little bit about that process and how it fits into the way that you pitch yourself to companies? Sometimes it just doesn't go expressed, but when they're hiring an agency or a freelancer, they really don't want it to last forever. Typically for my clients, the desired end state for design is to have a head of design or a you know principal designer in-house that owns the function that helps hire and build the team. And as an independent designer, I can help with a lot of that. And I do help with a lot of that, but the desired end state is to have someone else. And if that's not expressed and discussed up front, it can sometimes lead to some awkwardness down the road. Oh wait, they're interviewing people. Does that mean I'm going to like lose this gig? Really, I want to know up front and that's part of the very early discussions. Like what is that desired end state? Who do we think that hire is and roughly when are we talking about? Is it a year from now, 18 months? So we can start tracking for that make sure that we're in good shape for it when we want to start recruiting. You know, if they're trying to hire a head of design, but there's no one on staff to interview them, how are you going to do that? So that part typically really helps. And then landing, and usually I overlap with that hire for a month, maybe two months or so, depending. And then I, I fully ramp down. And um, the other just interesting dynamic to that that I would say is I think founders and people in general sometimes have this impression that the most irresistible thing to a designer is a purely blank slate. Like you can start from scratch and build this thing in your own vision. Typically I find that it's actually quite intimidating and what really is irresistible to designers is something that has momentum and potential and some activity and inspiration going on inside of it, but is imperfect. And they can come wrap their, their hands around it and make it their own. That's what's really compelling. And so usually by us working together for a year or so, the kind of like product that they have to offer a great design hire, they have so much more leverage than, you know, when starting out. You know, you have a really interesting vantage point in that you've been able to work with so many different teams and go to zero to one and see how these 
different companies operate. So I'd be interested in your perspective on kind of just what works. Like, are there certain characteristics or processes that you think more design teams should emulate? especially for early stage companies, it's amazing how you can think you're focused, but be distracted by a million things, especially things that are, you know, you think are in your interest and are what all other companies are talking about that you should be doing, even like design systems and retros and all of this. The most productive teams I see are hyper, hyper, hyper focused on the work and the thing that's going to build the business and not anything around it. And I guess the last thing that kind of goes with that is, I guess I would call decisiveness. Every company that starts with one founder or two founders has the ability, hopefully, to make quick, decisive decisions without a ton of justification. Big companies almost always lose that over time. So it's going to happen at some point. And I think preserving as long as possible the ability to make fast decisive decisions, yes, sometimes informed by data, but a lot of times informed by gut without uh, a ton of meetings and a ton of documentation. The failure mode I see for this is the company loses that ability way too early. Like they have 12 or 15 people and they're still doing four or five meetings for every decision or consensus can't be reached. So someone says, you know, maybe we should do an A-B test. Okay, well, that's not going to be decided for a month. And that just paralyzes companies and causes them to you know, move really slow, even though there's a, there's a flurry of activity. So it feels like a lot is going on, but they've kind of calcified to a very slow, slow pace. So preserving that like special magic and decisiveness that is part of all, you know, five person teams, if you can try to extend that to when your company is still 30 people, it's rare, but that's a really positive trait that I, I've noticed. I love that. We also sourced a bunch of questions on Twitter. There's some really good ones in here. So I want to end with like a quick lightning round just to make sure that we're covering our bases here. And the first one you've hinted at a little bit, like this uptick in inbound referrals over time. And the question is, what strategies are you putting in place to increase the amount of clients that you're receiving via referral? I was just talking to a freelancer about this the other day. One thing that might be heartening to know about freelance in general is that a lot of the problems and difficulties around freelancing tend to, maybe they don't disappear entirely, but they stop being big problems just with longevity, just by continuing to do the work over and over and over. So how do I get clients is like that? Because the answer is referrals and you get referrals by having lots of past clients. So there's things you can do, but the biggest thing you can do is just keep working and try to you know sort of stay in the game long enough. And there's an inflection point, maybe it's about two years where you realize, oh wow, all of these past clients are out there in the world working for me all the time, hearing about new projects and referring me and I don't have to do anything. Another piece of advice I would give on that, like if you're th looking for things to do, I think sometimes there's an underemphasis on your current clients. You want to do a good job for them, but you want to make them the best possible refer for you. You want them to be referring you without hesitation all the time for a decade. Focus on your current projects and making those people really big, you know, advocates for you because that's one of the things that you can control. Next question. What's your take on this movement towards more like productized agencies, kind of the design joy model with fixed pricing and things like that? Hot take. I've refrained from posting on Twitter about this. I would think really hard about what do you want to be doing all day? What is your goal? How do you want to be working? And it may be that there's a class of designer for whom that business structure creates the exact outcome they want. 
They want to be sitting in Trello and doing sort of one-off design tasks in a row. They don't want to talk to anyone. That is so diametrically opposed to how I want to be working and how I want to work with clients that it doesn't sound appealing to me in the slightest. Sometimes I, I talk to designers and th they want to figure out how to stop being a design vending machine. Like do this, do this, do this. So that's, you're really setting yourself up to be a design vending machine. And there may be ways to build and scale that as a business that are highly lucrative, like running a vending machine company. You want to be a designer that works consultatively with your clients and works on bigger and better projects over time. That to me does not seem to be a road to that outcome. And in fact, I would be very wary about building a business where your design product are small little tasks that can be described by a plain text prompt for reasons that I think would be obvious. It's not to, you know, dig on the whole model or the whole industry, but just think about what your desired end goal is. And if it's not to run a design vending machine, I would be very wary about setting up your whole business that way. I would focus more on start getting your first client doing roughly the type of work you actually want to be doing. When you're working on these long-term projects, how do you balance caring enough while still setting the right level of boundaries in place? For me personally, for better or worse, I have never had a caring enough problem. It's who I am. I get really invested in these projects. I think about them all the time. I really, really care about the outcome of them and the work and the, the experience the client is having. So it's more, how do I then run my life in a way where it doesn't bleed over? And for me, I guess there's two parts of it. I do have a pretty structured way that I run my week and my meetings with clients. So I do all my meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I tell them that totally upfront. There's all kinds of details about how those meetings tend to run, but you know, usually I'm seeing my clients on Tuesdays and Thursdays, so twice a week with async comms in between. There's very, very rare exceptions for meetings that like are one-off and can't be moved or things like that. But that basically means that on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm only doing design work and I have no expectation of talking to anyone live, which means I have nothing on my calendar. And that's like an amazing freeing feeling, especially for creativity. And on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm doing design work here and there, but I have no expectation that I'm going to be doing any significant productivity on producing design work, I'm mainly going to be having meetings and talking to people. And that cadence like really works for me. And by the time I'm done with a solitary day of working, I'm kind of ready to see people again and talk to people. And it's very energizing. I think what's really draining to people is this kind of uh, Tetris that they have to play with their calendar where it's like, I have a 45 minute block time to be creative. It doesn't really work that way. I think a lot of designers think clients are going to freak out at that. For me, if you explain it, uh, why that's a good structure and why it works and why we probably don't need to be meeting more than twice a week. Clients typically respect it. And that goes to this other kind of theme in terms of boundaries of, I think people sometimes sell themselves a little bit short. In general, clients, they're looking to you to tell them how they should treat you in terms of respect and seniority and time. And if you set those boundaries with them with confidence and you give them the sense that you should be treated as like a trusted advisor and skilled member of their team, typically they'll treat you that way. If you give them the sense that you should be treated like a design vending machine, they'll treat you that way. So a lot more of it is in the power of the freelancer, I think, than they, they sometimes think. How do you think about pricing and how has that evolved over the last 10 years? I see a very common trend of starting out hourly and shifting towards more of like a, basically expanding the unit of accounting to either big project-based chunks or a retainer, whether that's like a, 
you know, daily rate, weekly rate, or a monthly retainer. And I think that's good. That's the trajectory I went through. Hourly is very good for price discovery, right? You can have an hourly rate, adjust it a little bit, realizing you were charging a little bit low, but it's not a long, a, a good long-term way to charge, in my opinion. The general trend on pricing, you know, I think that is simple but effective is to essentially figure out a rate, whether it's hourly, weekly, monthly, that's roughly you know, in the ballpark, you can you can ask on Twitter, you can ask some colleagues. Another thing you can do is just work backwards from a W-2 salary, like go figure out what an illustrator makes full-time at a company and, you know, factor in like tax and vacation and benefits and then back that out into an hourly rate. It might not be exactly right, but you're going to be in the ballpark. And essentially, you just want to keep incrementally raising rates until you can't anymore. And for some people, can't means even like the first client balks at the price, either for personal or financial reasons. But typically, I think you're priced very well in terms of supply and demand if you're losing something like 30% of projects on price alone. So if, if you're not losing projects due to price, your price is too low. If everyone is turning you down, you're crazy and you need to you know get your head on straight. But if you have a third of the people saying, oh, I really would love to do it, it's just too expensive, you're probably priced about right. We've covered a lot of ground in this conversation. Before I let you go, are there any questions that I should be asking or anything else that you want to leave listeners with? I love talking about this stuff. Being you know, freelance and then running my own studio is the best job that I've ever had. I really wish that it was a more legible and kind of like clear career path for people because a lot of the stuff that's out there in our industry in terms of learning is really oriented around W-2 employment. If, if you are listening to this and you're thinking, man, I, I really think that might be for me, I really encourage you to give it a try. I'm always an open book, so you can email me or, or hit me up on Twitter anytime. And part of my motivation for doing this is I just wish more people had a chance to give the independent career tra trajectory a try. Well, I'm sure you've inspired a lot of people to at least dip their toes. Thank you, Kevin. This has been awesome. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Rid. I had a lot of fun.